Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, a podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal, which explores tourism and tourism-related areas, recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. Kira ora and welcome. I'm Jayan Che, co-host of the Tourism Geographies podcast by the journal Tourism Geographies. Today, I'm speaking with Professor um, Catherine Adams at Loyola University Chicago, SUAS in London, and Wakayama University in Japan. Bulan, welcome to the show, Catherine. Oh, How thank you? you so much, Jayun, for the lovely introduction and for inviting me to join you. Thank you so much for your time. Over the next 15 minutes, I'll be talking to Catherine about her recent work published um, in Tourism Geographies. And here's my first question. What question or problem was this paper setting out to understand? The paper, uh, which was entitled What Western Tourism Concepts Obscure, the Intersections of Migration and Tourism in Indonesia, dealt with and tackled the classic Anglo-European conception of tourism as recreational travel, something that we're all familiar with that assumes that tourism is categorically distinct from other forms of mobility, like migration, even exile. Uh, So this concept of tourism, as we all know, has informed tourism policies going all the way back to the rise of jet travel in the 60s. But as we all know, over the past couple of decades, uh, some scholars have started chipping away at the siloed concepts of tourism and migration arguing that there's actually you know, some blurriness, some overlap in these activities uh, that are covered by this term tourism. You know, so basically, I was interested in two things with this article. I wanted, first of all, to present an ethnographically grounded case study of a non-Western cultural perspective on travel, mainly to see if it might be instructive for correcting this kind of persistent binary that divides migration from tourism, these things that have plagued Western concepts of travel that have become kind of imperialistic in their spread. And so that is, I want to know, you know, what might local forms of knowledge tell us about travel that orthodox Western notions of tourism might be missing? Are there distinctive forms of travel that we might find that kind of shake up these mutually exclusive Western categories of tourism and travel. So I thought these kinds of explorations might be instructive in helping us to develop new strategies for tourism revitalization in these challenging times in which we live. And then I had a second, uh, more methodological aim in writing this article. I wanted to spotlight ethnographic storytelling as a scholarly strategy that might help further destabilize these Western-centric understandings of tourism. So in cultural anthropology, which is my field, we've recently seen a a small flurry of books that have pushed for an expanded vision of the anthropologist, the scholar as storyteller. And we've also seen some really exciting, creative new forms of knowledge sharing. And recently there have been people who are doing things like writing anthropological graphic novels. And some have also done photo essays and other things. So 
there's been this recognition that there are other ways of conveying knowledge that might be more conducive to giving a different set of insights more effectively. And, you know, anthropologists have long argued that participant observation, which is our standard methodology, and I'll just say something about that because I think there are a lot of different disciplinary interpretations of what participant mm -hmm. observation entails. In anthropology, which developed this methodology, we define participant observation as living in the community one wants to learn about for at least a year, possibly two years. Uh, learning their, the language that is spoken there, if it's different from one's own, um, partaking in everyday life, studying from local mentors in the community. And we really feel that this mode of data collection, even though it's riddled with problems that one can imagine, ethical problems and other problems, we feel this mode of data collection really enables us to convey the textures of life, the, tw uh, the tastes of life, emotions, and most importantly, the stories of those, of the lives of those that we're seeking to understand. So for me, what I find really important about stories is that these ethnographically grounded stories offer the promise of, of fostering empathy in our increasingly intolerant world. And so I wanted to push tourism geography scholars, tourism scholars more broadly, to think about storytelling as a mode of conveying knowledge, because tourism scholars have certainly looked at stories, right? Um, we know that there are a number of articles that look at stories as something guides do, right? As practices that merge entertainment and education to move visitors, to compel visitors to, to be intrigued by the destination. But I hadn't seen any attention paid to tourism storytelling's value as a scholarly strategy for destabilizing very orthodox theoretical understanding. So in the article, what I want to do, the second kind of methodological aim, was to foreground local community members' stories surrounding travel as a really valuable but understudied path that would enable us to rethink some of our Western Anglo-centric assumptions in tourism studies. So that, those are my two main aims. Well, Catherine, that's that's really deeply, deeply inspiring as a as a young researcher, and I think more people should use this method and approach for sure. After listening this, listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> it's also really wonderful to get to hear people's stories, right, about their lives. And, yeah, it's more and, interesting, and right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. If you enjoy and are intrigued by people, you know, definitely. as opposed to a survey. Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> And can you briefly describe the background and context of the work? Like where, when, who? Sure. Yeah. sure. Um, well, this part, the study was part of a much longer term uh, body of work that it was exploring the ramifications of tourism in the homeland of the Taraja people in the highlands of the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. I began doing research there in the mid-1980s when I was a young graduate student doing my oh. doctoral research. And I lived with a Taraja host family in one of the most toured villages in the Highlands. And I was really interested in tourism's impact on the community and on people's ideas about their arts, on people's sensibilities about their ethnic identity, and in, on, you know, on their sensibilities about their place in Indonesia. They were a hinterland, they still are a hinterland group. They live all over the world, but the homeland and the highlands of Sulawesi is kind of 
nine hours from the largest city on the island, and they're a religious minority as well. They're uh, largely the Christian majority in a predominantly Muslim nation. So in many ways, um, they were a minority, and they still are a minority group in Indonesia. But you know, over the years, tourism really took off to the point where they've now been nominated. Their traditional villages, settlements mm -hmm. have been nominated uh, to take a place on UNESCO's World Heritage Site list. Uh, they have spectacular traditional architecture, really elaborately carved homes, uh, effigies of the dead, beautiful graves, uh, and beautiful scenery as well. So as I was doing this research and writing about different aspects of, of lives of Tarajans with some Taraja collaborators as well as on my own, one thing that my Taraja mentors had pointed out to me way back when I was a graduate student stuck in my mind, and that is that they pointed out that the government collected data on tourism arrivals was, was problematic to their minds because it was based on two categories. It was based on domestic tourists and international tourists, right? And the way they got the data is pretty much how it's done in a lot of places, right? They counted tourist ticket purchases entering uh, major tourism sites, and they also looked at hotel guest numbers. And my Taraja friends pointed out that during vacations, the hotels were actually flooded with returning Taraja migrants. And there are hundreds of thousands of Taraja migrants all over the world working in all sorts of fields. And in summer breaks and winter breaks sometimes as well, they return with their kids or if they're studying abroad themselves to see their families. And when they return with their kids, they're interested in showing them heritage sites, getting their kids to appreciate what it means to be Taraja, as well as visiting family and friends. And so they were saying that the government didn't understand this and that they were missing some important things that in not understanding this, that might be useful for generating, you know, more hotel stays for generating a kind of more economic income in challenging times. So, so that kept sticking in my head. I wrote some about domestic tourism and other things in Indonesia back in the 80s or 90s. And I kept wanting to think more about returning migrants. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, um, I'll just detour, it wasn't really until I returned with my husband and my child for a funeral and it was their first visit. And the family I lived with packed me off with the other returning migrants for a tour, for a two-day tour of Taraja, so that they could see, you know, what they were connected to by the adopted anthropologist. Oh. And I was with all of these other returning migrants, you know, in this little minivan. And I realized that really tourism was an important part of what was going on, what we think of as tourism, yet we tended not to think about returning migrants or you know, in that way. So I decided that that was what I wanted to do my project on. Does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, definitely. I, I love your stories, actually. <laughs> I, I want to hear actually more stories. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. And with this story, so um, how do, would you, I mean, describe um, conceptual theory um, kind of working with this story? Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier, right, that I was interested in local mm -hmm. knowledge and I wanted to foreground local knowledge, which often gets erased by these Western concepts and theories. So one category I really wanted to highlight was a concept that grew from the ground, right? It wasn't one of my concepts that I brought to the field that I was playing with that was out there in tourism theory. And that was beyond the idea of local knowledge, which is an idea out there, the idea of Maranto. 
uh, and people familiar with the Indonesian Malay world will recognize this concept. It is related to migration, but it doesn't really neatly map onto that English term. It's really widely used and it covers everything from leaving one's hometown or homeland voluntarily for a long period of time, could be a short period of time, with the aim of earning a living or adding to one's knowledge and one's experience. But normally there's always the intent of returning home afterwards. And so I, as an anthropologist, when I was a grad student studying in Taraja, um, they would all say, oh yes, you're on the rantau, you're doing marantau now, you're here in the field for a couple of years, you know, in Taraja, and then you're gonna go home with new knowledge and a new status because you'll get your PhD, right? So that's a form of marantau, studying abroad or doing research. Uh, but today, Maranto encompasses everything from migration to these kinds of long-term around-the-world studies or travels where you work in a vineyard for a while and continue your, your explorations. It also includes, you know, well, it includes tourism, of course, right? What we think of the classic stereotypic idea of tourism, recreational travel abroad. So and it's, I think it's revealing that in Indonesia, Malaysia, there are all sorts of tourist restaurants and tourist hotels that are named Merantau or Peranto, one who goes on, you know, on the Merantau. So some have translated it as wanderlust, but it's not really wanderlust because of this idea of you're going to be going home and you're going to have a different status. You know, wanderlust is sort of wanderlust is something that you're not really anchored anywhere, right? So, and there, there's a scholar from Malaysia, Kadir Din, has also written about something closely related that is called Balik Kampung. And this is the idea that migrants go home, right, to their home villages, ancestral villages for the holidays. So they're returning back to the, the village. And so this is closely related as well. So these two concepts really are grounded, right, in the Indonesia Malay world. And I wanted to foreground those because I think they, they challenge this idea that we have the stereotypic idea right, that tourism is recreational travel. So it's this kind of local knowledge, local residents savvy in their understandings of cultural practices that present all sorts of possibilities for generating successful businesses that outsider tourism entrepreneurs, consultants would never, ever imagine possible. And let me think, to give you an example, one of the stories I told in the article, which I'll really, you know, in shorten dramatically, I tell a story of a Taraja entrepreneur who had gone on the Rantau actually to the United States to study uh, for his PhD. And then he went back and he set up a hotel and now a restaurant and now a hotel in a completely unexpected place. It's not up in the Taraja Highlands where tourists go, and it's not in the main city where you know they're at the airport or where the buses depart to go up to the highlands. Rather, it's about halfway along the road. And it was a really lonely, desolate area. People talked about this structure on the waterfront there as being haunted. Um, it had been a gambling kind of place. And everyone said, you're crazy to open it. You are a Catholic Taraja. You're going to be in a Muslim homeland. Who's going to go there? You know, people are going to not be excited about having you either. And in the end, he was really drawing on his own local knowledge. He knew about this being an important path that Taraja migrants took and when they traveled, and that they never really wanted to eat. Uh, they had to break to eat somewhere on the road. This is the halfway point, but they brought their own food because there wasn't anywhere they felt comfortable eating. And he realized he could also, because he had pretty scenery, 
capitalize on the tourist market. I'm distinguishing them here as we tend to do in the West, right? On foreign tourists and domestic tourists going there. And so he thought this is going to be a good place and I will use my local knowledge of social relations on Sulawesi to cultivate strong ties with the local villages, even though they're a different religion and ethnic group from me. And he did just that. And it's a super successful now, not only restaurant, but hotel. And, you know, no Western consultant, no foreigner, no government official from the main island would have ever dreamt of putting a business up there. And it survived the pandemic precisely because of these migrants. So that's one story I tell that that I think illustrates, and it's through you know him and his son, it illustrates the importance of paying attention to local knowledge and, and give it offering insights into businesses that can be developed. And then the other thing I, I did want to mention that I think is important to think about and something that probably most listeners are familiar with is that I've, this article is part of a much broader movement in tourism studies that most of people here probably know already, and that's critical tourism studies, right? So this idea of examining and seeking insights into how things like you know, nationality or class or or gender, or race, or, or sexual orientation, um, religion, all of these things can inform all sorts of aspects of tourism. And that these, uh, these things, you know, offer entitlements and privileges to some people and become roadblocks, exclude, excluding others. So the article, you know, was part of critical tourism studies and that it was trying to use scholarly knowledge to make a difference and to generate more respect for and um, respect for and interest in understanding local knowledge, understanding non-Western perspectives on tourism. I cannot appreciate more of your work. And I'm actually teaching critical tourism studies this semester. And I'm oh, using wonderful. this article next week um, for funny. my lecture called Western Centrism in Tourism Theory. So this is a perfect timing uh, for discussion. So thanks so much for creating my teaching material. <laughs> Oh, that's so nice to hear and encouraging. Thank you. Yeah, because it captures all these complexities, you know, in you know, local knowledge and the Western centrism, um, in knowledge uh, co-creation, co creation, right? And Catherine, before we go, do you have any one last key takeaway for the audience? Well, I definitely think that I would advocate for paying attention to local concepts pertaining to travel and mm -hmm. how it can kind of give us a roadmap for these strategies that really might make a difference for communities' economic survival in hard times. And I really hope that my article helps point us towards what can be learned uh, from local knowledge and, and, and how local knowledge might be a path towards, towards rescue, not rescuing, but towards helping others see possibilities in new forms of, of tourism-related businesses. And then, and storytelling, you know, I hope people become more interested in the stories of those they're seeking to learn from and that we open our ears. There's nothing wrong with survey data. There's nothing wrong with, you know, formal interviews. They're great methods, but I think storytelling can really complement them well. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks so much for enlightening us today. <laughs>
Oh, that's very kind of you. As a plug for the Critical Tourism Studies Conference in Asia Pacific in February, a book will be launched that Natalia Block and I have co-edited that picks up on this theme and has contributors from all over the world. And the title is The Intersections of Tourism, Migration, and Exile. It's coming out with Routledge in January. And so if you're interested in these themes, there's going to be a whole bunch of case studies in this book that tries to tease apart the ways in which these, these siloed, classically siloed fields are connected and intertwined. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.